All right, I will be reading from New King James Version because that is what my parents used to read to me growing up. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 52. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the crooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then he came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, 
lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out? As against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was with you daily in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now, a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. This is the word of God. And that was a full meal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you that you preserved it for our benefit so that we could be shaped into the image of Jesus, so that we could know you. You revealed yourself to us through your word. And Lord, we align ourselves to the truths that are on offer today. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight Use the limitations of my word, of my dictation, of my language, of my pace. Do what only you can do with these words. I offer them up to you before the people, and I ask that you would speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. At the beginning of 2021, I read a book that would change the trajectory of my 2021. Now, books, if they, uh, at the best, have one sentence that can change your life. A great book has more than one. Atomic Habits was the name of the book. It's a guy by the name of James Clear. He is a habit guru. And I don't typically read these kind of books, but someone had recommended it to me. Here was the sentence that changed the trajectory of my 2021. He said, Habit formation happens from the inside out. You don't just change your environment, you change your identity. He gave the example of someone, two people who are trying to quit smoking. One person, you offer them a cigarette and they say, no thank you, I'm trying to quit. The other person, you offer the cigarette and they say, no thanks, I'm not a smoker. One of those will continue smoking. The other one might pick up a cigarette, but he's done smoking. I decided to think about my physical health in this way. I had been an athlete all my life until I turned 40. 
I don't remember deciding that I'm not an athlete anymore. And I just decided at that moment, I walked across the room and I said, Ruth, I'm a second half athlete. She said, huh? Did you wash the dishes? It didn't mean that much to her, but it meant a lot to me. It was an identity change. What can I do to prove that I'm a second half athlete? So I called my cousin and I said, hey, you think I could run a marathon? He said, I don't know if you can run a marathon. And he started asking me questions and he said, okay, I'll tell you the secret to running a marathon, but not until you sign up. So he kept going on and on. And so right then and there, while I was on the phone with him, I signed up for the Oklahoma City Marathon in October. It was March. I had six months to prepare, and I took it very seriously. I downloaded a training plan. I started filling out my calendar all while on the phone with my cousin Thomas. And I said, okay, I did it. He said, you did what? I said, I signed up for the Oklahoma City Marathon. He said, you're serious about this. I said, I'm serious. He said, okay. You want to know the secret? I said, that was it, wasn't it? It was just sign up. That was it. He said, no, but that's a good secret. Maybe you can tell somebody else that someday. He said, the secret is this. A marathon is 26.2 miles. The halfway point is mile 20. I was like, that seems ridiculous, but I'm going to keep it in mind. So I started training. I ran, uh, I ran uh, at home. I ran when I traveled. I lost almost 50 pounds in that six-month span. Then came the Oklahoma City Marathon. Oklahoma City is about 90 miles from Tulsa. My family met me there. Oklahoma City came alive for this marathon. It was amazing. It was a nice, cool day. I knew it was going to be hot a little, a little bit later. And sure enough, that was the case. But as I'm running through, uh, people are, I mean, tens of thousands of people came out to the marathon. They're holding up signs saying, you train three months for this marathon. I train three months to hold this sign. Or uh, there was a, the, the people got clever. There was a series of signs. You're coming around this corner. Someone is holding a sign that says, we've been trying, dot, dot, dot. Then you come around. There's another sign, to reach you about, dot, dot, dot. Your extended warranty was the last part of this. And uh, they finally caught me. They finally got me face to face. Uh, went into a neighborhood, and I heard somebody on a microphone saying, you thought we wouldn't be here this year? We're back. Welcome to Mimosa Beach. And they're handing out mimosas to all the, all the marathon runners. It was amazing. It really was amazing. I set out on an amazing pace. I mean, it was the best. I had never felt so good running. Maybe it was the adrenaline. I don't know what it was. But man, I mean, I, I, my pace was the best it had been for 10 straight miles of sustaining it. It was a nice, cool morning. And then about mile 13, somehow I got away from my pacers. Pacers run with a little flag that says that what their pace is, and you got to stay with them. So I, I started to slow down. The sun started coming up, and people started quitting. People started throwing up on the side of the road. People started, you know, the whole knee wobbly thing. I was determined to finish. But then the next set of pacers passed me. Then the next set of pacers passed me. Then the next, then the next. All of a sudden, I'm way off pace, and I'm playing these mind games with myself. And all of a sudden, a mom pushing a stroller passed me. A guy in a wheelchair passed me, literally, literally. A 10-year-old boy passed me, 
and worst of all, a dad blaring Nickelback from a speaker that he had tied to his belt. That was the most embarrassing of all. I got to mile 20, and I hit the wall. I stopped on the side of the road. I wasn't just meandering. I completely stopped. The people holding signs went through several cycles of cheering people as they came by, and one of them leaned over and said, are you okay, buddy? I was embarrassed. As all these people passed by, I just had one thought, and that was this. What went wrong with my training? Well, a couple of things went wrong. I trained on mostly flat terrain in Tulsa. I trained in good weather. I could run 18, 19, 20, 21 miles, but I was avoiding the difficult terrain. I trained for when it was good. Pastor John Tyson said, pain is for the purpose of perseverance. You train for the pain. And you don't train for when times are good. You train for when times are hard. There I was, mile 20, side of the road. Everyone knows I had not trained like I should. I was overconfident and undertrained. I felt naked and ashamed. I did finish the marathon, four hours and 28 minutes, about 30 minutes slower than my goal, maybe about an hour slower than my original pace. My cousin had warned me about this. I should have known better. I knew mile 20 was coming, and despite my best intentions, in spite of my confidence, reality did not shape itself to my illusions. We don't rise to the occasion. We fall to the level of our preparation. That's important for followers of Jesus because we believe that we have a destiny to someday be like Jesus, more like Jesus at the end of your life than you were when you started, more like Jesus five years from now than five years ago, more like Jesus tomorrow than today, more like Jesus today than yesterday. But how does that happen? I wish I could just lay hands on you and you become more like Jesus. I wish we could just lift our hands in worship and immediately walk out of here more like Jesus than ever before. But that, for some reason, is not how God decided to make it happen. We have to train. We have to practice. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 tells us that becoming like Jesus doesn't happen all at once, but we move from one degree of glory to the next. It happens by degree. We're in a series, as I mentioned, called Jesus is King, and we're working through the Gospel of Mark together. And in the text that Ariel just read from Mark 14, we see what happened when times got tough for Jesus' closest apprentices. Jesus had told them about mile 20. He told them that the wall was coming. He invited them to prepare, but many of them were not prepared for the tough time. When Jesus was at his best, his disciples, many of them, were at their worst. 
You see, these guys were not just invited for a great show. They were not just invited to have a neat viewing of Jesus' life, to see him do magic tricks like walking on water, uh, multiplying the loaves and fishes, casting out demons and healing people. They were invited to participate. They were invited to train. They were invited to do what you're supposed to do with a rabbi, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to go do Jesus-y things. That was their commission. Jesus' invitation sounded like, follow me, but it also sounded like, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That wasn't just a, a neat little analogy. That was a euphemism in the first century that, that rabbis used to say, follow me, and you can be a teacher. You can be like a rabbi. So from the time these kids were little boys, they trained and trained and trained. They memorized the first five books of the Bible, and many of them had also memorized the Psalms and the Proverbs. They had gone through training at synagogue day after day after day so that when they were 12, maybe a rabbi would come to them and say, follow me. But because it didn't happen, they went back to their father's business. Peter and others went to be fishermen. And Jesus chased them down and said to them, follow me. No wonder they threw away their nets and immediately began to follow him. It was like being invited to be in the NBA. My little son, Jackson, is eight years old. He wants to be in the NBA and the NFL. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling him he can't. This is America. You can do whatever you want to do, right? Jackson just bought his first basketball goal. This is his, actually his sixth season of playing basketball. We're a basketball family. Sixth season of playing basketball. He just bought his first basketball goal, and he is imitating one player and one player only. Do you care to guess who that player is? Anybody? Say it. Somebody said it. Steph Curry. Of course. Every kid looks at Steph Curry. You, know, you, you, you look at Giannis Antetokounmpo, seven feet tall, able to run up and down the court, and you think, there's no way I can. I don't, it's not in the genes. I'm not going to be that guy. But Steph Curry, you think, maybe. I mean, he's a small little guy. Maybe I could do that. And so kids are trying to shoot like Steph Curry. Imagine if Steph Curry showed up at 5227 South 69th East Avenue in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Don't look it up. How dare you? And he drives up, and he says, hey, Jackson, I think you've got what it takes to be the next Steph Curry. Hop in the limo. He's going to be like, bye, Mom and Dad. I'm going to go be like Steph Curry. But imagine in this one-year one internship that all Jackson does is watch YouTube videos of Steph Curry or plays video games with Steph Curry or collects basketball cards with Steph Curry's autograph. He's with Steph, but he's not becoming like Steph Curry. You know, through the gospel of Mark, we've seen the disciples with this friction. The guys who had every advantage, every opportunity to become like Jesus are not becoming like Jesus. And the, and, the, and the poor and the disenfranchised, the former lepers, as we talked about last week, and the, the sinners, Mary, 
in, in the first part of Mark 14, shows exemplary discipleship. She has been with Jesus, and she is doing Jesus-y things. In contrast, the disciples are not. The twelve are not. As we consider this text together and see what it tells us about how we can become more like Jesus, I want to look at the characters in the story. So we're going to look at Judas, we're going to look at Peter and John Mark, and then we're going to look at Jesus. Judas, Peter and John Mark, and Jesus. Imagine the scene. Jesus and his disciples have just left Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're headed to Jerusalem for Passover. Jerusalem is at fever pitch with excitement and anticipation. They've heard rumblings of a possible Messiah, a wonder-working wise rabbi from Galilee who's sticking it to the man confounding the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. The disciples can't help but notice that since Mary's lavish anointing of Jesus as they're walking into Jerusalem, man, Jesus, you smell good. Jesus, you smell like a king. And he did. As they walk through the streets of Jerusalem, they hear the bleeding, bleating of lambs. Josephus tells us as many as 150,000 lambs were slaughtered for Passover. The sound makes the disciples hungry. Meat was a rare treat in the first century. Passover meals were the best. I want you to think about, have in mind, preparing to go to a family Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. There are foods that are going to be out that you don't always get to eat. All the special recipes passed down from generations are going to be right there at this Passover meal. And there is a rumble in the jungle. These guys are hungry. They arrive at the upper room prepared for their intimate Passover setting. The hosts have the places set, ready to go. The men recline at table, and they start picking around at the food. As you're looking at your brothers, your fellow disciples, you look over and you notice that Jesus seems to be deeply troubled. Passover is a celebration. It's a celebration of rescue from Egypt. Why is Jesus so down in the dumps? Mark 14, verse 18 says, While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him, one by one, like, is it me? Surely it's not me. Is it me? Is it me, Jesus? Notice what they didn't do. You know, we read with the curse of knowledge. We've heard these stories so many times. We know it's Judas. Of course it's Judas. But guess who didn't know it was Judas? They didn't notice it was Judas. Notice nobody said, aha, I knew it, Judas. I could tell there was something. I always knew there was something about that guy. Wasn't I right? Elbowing Andrew. Instead, they're aware of their own shortcomings. 
This is, what it's, this is a, a good thing about the disciples. They're aware that they are capable of betraying Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. The order of who sits around this table is important. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us, but when you can piece it together, the scholars give us this picture. You don't just sit where you want in, this, uh, in a meal like this. There is a rank the three closest disciples, the inner three, are just to Jesus' right. You've got John, Peter, and James, probably interchanged between the three of those who got to sit right next to Jesus from time to time. But John, the disciple Jesus loved, you know, lays his head on Jesus. He's, he's, um, he's right there to Jesus' right. Then to Jesus' left is a place of honor. It's different every time. It was the honored person by the person who's giving the Passover Seder. Care to venture a guess who's sitting to Jesus' left? Judas. Think about that. Think about the goodness of Jesus. Think about the kindness of Jesus. Think about the fact that Jesus is a non-anxious presence. Anytime you and I sense a threat from someone around us, do we respond with enemy love? Do we spontaneously react toward our enemies with love? Maybe the most radical teaching of Jesus is this idea of love your enemy. And Judas has set himself against Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He pulls him close. Judas had not been practicing the way of Jesus. But this was it. The person to the left would have been the one to whom would be given the choicest piece of lamb. You know, if you come over to my house and I'm grilling steaks for you, I'm going to let you pick the steak that you want, right? That's probably the same. If I go to your house, you're going to let me pick the steak that I want. It's, a, it's kind of a thing of honor. Jesus reaches, and anybody ever eaten Ethiopian food? Okay, just a couple of you. You, you got the, what's it called? The little, the, the, the bready thing. I can't remember what it is, but you grab all your food with that. So this is what's happening with this bread. Jesus reaches in and he grabs the choicest piece of lamb and he looks Judas in the eye and he offers him grace. He offers him a way out. Yes, Psalm prophesied that someone close to Jesus would betray Jesus. But guess who it did not have to be? It did not have to be Judas. Mark 14, verse 20, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, it's one of the 12. So a lot of people here, not just disciples, not just the 12. It's one of the 12. In fact, it's the one who's dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as is written about him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Is Jesus cursing Judas for all eternity? 
Or is this a warning? A woe is a warning. A woe is an invitation. A woe is an invitation to repent. You're stuck in the miry clay, Judas. This is a hand to get you out. Here it is, Judas, mile 20. What was his training? Well, John chapter 12, verse 6 tells us that Judas had already been practicing the way of Herod. Judas had been exploiting the poor and stealing from the money bag, not just from Jesus, but from all of his friends. So there was Judas sitting before Jesus, choicest piece of Passover lamb in his hand, and he was utterly naked before Jesus. His betrayal fully known. He knows Jesus knows. And yet Jesus doesn't shame him. This is a way of escape. John chapter 3 verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe in him is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness more than light. For whoever does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished when you are naked in front of Jesus. Simply cast yourself on, his, on him. If you're not a follower of Jesus here today or watching online or listening on the podcast, or if you've been pretending to follow Jesus, you've been associated with Jesus, you want Jesus' stuff, but you don't want Jesus, do you know he still offers you the choicest piece of lamb? All you have to do is say yes. Judas didn't. Now let's look at Peter and John Mark. The home that had been prepared for this Passover feast was John Mark's home, the guy who wrote the gospel. This is his parents' house. In Acts chapter 12, we find out that this home had become a center for Christian fellowship in Jerusalem, almost like a home church. And this was the early seeds of that Christian community surrounding a table with Jesus breaking bread together. Other gospel accounts tell us that during this conversation, an argument breaks out. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He smells like a king. And the disciples start arguing about who among them is the greatest. While they're arguing, John chapter 13 tells us what Jesus does. Don't you just picture this? They're laying around this table. They're picking and eating food. 
They start arguing, and Jesus just silently gets up and starts taking off his clothes. He takes off the seamless robe. He strips down naked and unashamed. He likely kept on a loincloth. But he's got a basin of water and a towel, and he starts moving toward them. They're arguing over who is the greatest, and Jesus gets down on his knees in the filth of their feet and starts washing their feet. Now, we're so familiar with this story, we miss some of its implication. You see, in a Jewish home, if there were no Hebrew slaves, no Hebrew indentured servants, or if there were only Hebrew indentured servants, and there was a male and a female, the female Hebrew slave would have to wash the feet. If there, were, if there was a male and a female Hebrew, but a Gentile male, the male would have to, male Gentile would have to wash the feet. If there was a female Gentile slave, she would have to be the one to wash the feet. Jesus identifies with the lowest person in society, gets down and washes his disciples' feet, and Peter sees it coming. It's too much for him to handle. This is not appropriate. Just like the other disciples had shunned Mary for worshiping Jesus with the oil, Peter now shuns Jesus for looking like a Gentile female slave. This is not what Peter signed up for. He rejects Jesus' first offer, thinking it might be a test. And once he finds out Jesus is serious, Peter's like, okay, 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 okay. Uh, I'm all in. And I love this. Jesus, still sopping wet, still smelling like a king, starts singing. Mark chapter 14, verse 37, um, or verse 26 says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told them, Even if everyone falls away, not me, Jesus had just predicted his resurrection. Did you even notice that? He said, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. I'm going to, after I die, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to Galilee. They didn't even notice. Peter didn't even acknowledge the fact that Jesus just said, I'm going to be raised from the dead. He wants to correct Jesus. Listen, I'm a pretty big deal, Jesus. Jesus said, truly I tell you, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And I want to take it easy on Peter. Peter insists. He says, if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. I believe Peter. I believe Peter has the best of intentions. I believe Peter is in the first 10 miles of this marathon. He's feeling good about his discipleship to Jesus. 
He has done things that no one has ever done other than Jesus. He's walked on water. He has seen Jesus transfigured. He has been with Jesus. He wants to become like Jesus. He has the best of intentions, yet he's falling short. Remember, Jesus didn't come to condemn Peter. I think just like Jesus was reaching out to Judas, he was also reaching out to Peter. I think Jesus knew what was going to happen but offered an invitation. It doesn't have to happen this way. Here's why I think that. Here's why. When Jesus breaks away to pray, he says, Peter, Peter, wake up. Hey, 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 come here. Come with me. Come pray with me. And Peter falls back asleep, just like everybody else does. Peter, come, Jesus comes back. Hey, hey, Peter, come pray with me. What would have happened if Peter would have prayed? What would have happened if Peter had been practicing praying when he didn't feel like it? What would have happened if Peter had been practicing denying his body for the sake of the kingdom? I don't know. We will never know. But that's not the point. Here's the point. Jesus is relentless. He relentlessly invites us to be naked and unashamed before him, to be vulnerable with him, to, to be honest about our weaknesses, to be honest about our limitations, to be honest about our sin before him, to cast our cares on him. We can stop hiding. That's the good news. We can stop hiding. Do you have somebody in your life who knows your story, your struggles, and your secrets? 1 John 1, 9 says, confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I believe that with all my heart. But you know the book of James says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Moving in toward the pain. That is training to be like Jesus. We can stop hiding. Darkness is not darkness to him anyway. Don't you know he sees it and he still loves you? Don't you know he saw Judas and he still loved him? He saw Peter and he still washed his feet. All of the disciples ran and abandon him. And there's this funny little note at the end of the narrative, Mark 14, verses 50. Did you catch this? Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now, they all agreed with Peter. You know, you know yeah, like what he said, I'm not going to leave you. And then they all deserted him. How does this happen? And what do you do when you find yourself in that spot? Well, here's the clue. Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. They, the, the mob, they caught him. But he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Naked and ashamed? 
I see this as naked and unashamed. Do you know why? Do you know who this is? Who wrote this? This is John Mark. John Mark is being honest about his deficiencies. He's being honest about his denial of Jesus. Just like Peter, who's helping me write this gospel, denied Jesus, John Mark is raising his hand and saying, I did it too. I left him. I abandoned him. I was naked, and now I stand naked and unashamed. Why would he include this? Because John Mark faced the pain of his weakness, and he gave it to Jesus. And you know what Jesus did? He turned it into glory. And John Mark went from glory to glory. John Mark is the same guy who followed Peter around on his missionary journeys and Paul around on his missionary journeys. And guess what? John Mark is credited with launching the church in Africa. John Mark died for his faith. He was martyred in the very place he was trying to reach for Jesus in Alexandria. Fleming Rutledge says this, we are responsible before God for sin. And yet we are unable to liberate ourselves from its grip. We're in a desperate situation, deserving God's wrath, marked out for his judgment. And yet each of us individually and all of us collectively are without hope except for Jesus. Indeed, it is only by looking sin straight in the face that we are able to understand grace. Sentimental evasions are long-range cruelty. Let us not evade. Let us not flinch from the truth about ourselves. I want to invite the band come up. We're going to finish with a time of worship, as we always do. But let not, this not be an ordinary Sunday to you. Scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We live in a broken world. Would you take this time to stand before Jesus, to lift up your hands and worship him, and then move into a space Will you stand before him naked and unashamed? I don't mean literally, just in case anybody's wondering. I said we would look at Judas, Peter, and John Mark. Finally, just a word about Jesus. What about Jesus? When the mob came, Jesus didn't flinch. When Peter cut off Malchus' ear, Jesus showed spontaneous burst of enemy love, both to the servant of the high priest, both to Malchus and to Peter, because guess who else would have been crucified, potentially, had Jesus not healed Malchus' ear? Peter could have stepped into that space of enemy love had he simply been practicing the way of Jesus. And guess what? After the resurrection, Peter did. Hebrews chapter 12 says, therefore, 
since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. How did Jesus endure the pain? He did it. Not because he was a sadomasochist. He wasn't trying to hurt himself. He did it for joy. Joy is on the other side of pain when you're becoming like Jesus. And Jesus is relentless in his invitation to say, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just before they caught away to the garden to pray, Jesus invited his disciples into a meal to have communion. I'm going to invite every single person. You go, come when, whenever you want to. But during this worship time, would you consider coming to grab communion? These carpets are here for you to break away and spend a little moment with Jesus as well. We're going to sing and worship Jesus together. He's relentlessly pursuing your heart. Will you be vulnerable before him today? Let's worship.